This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Craig Cervillo, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Sandra Ott about her excellent new book, Living with the Enemy, German Occupation, Collaboration, and Justice in the Western Pyrenees, 1940-1948, published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Dr. Ott, hello, and welcome to the show. Oh, hello. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, well, no, it's our pleasure. Um, I'm glad to have you. Um, Dr. Ott, we like to always begin these interviews by having uh, the author tell us something about themselves. Well, I I grew up in in Pennsylvania in a very small town and went to Pomona College in California as an undergraduate where I read English with an emphasis in creative writing. And I then, uh, in my junior year, went to the Outer Hebrides, which was my first taste of anthropological fieldwork. Um, from Pomona, I went to Oxford University and did all of my, my graduate work there. Uh, and during the course of my fieldwork for my master's, my MLIT at Oxford, I worked on an Irish Gaelic-speaking island off the coast of Donegal in Ireland. Uh, and then for my DPhil at Oxford, I went to the French Basque Country for the first time as an anthropologist, as a social anthropologist. Um, and I worked in a Pyrenean uh, community that was really at the end of the the end of the road in those days in 1976. Lived with um, a family for just over a year, and I have been back to that 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 Basque community every year since 1976. And because I lived in Britain for almost 30 years, it was easy for me to go back to the Basque country on a regular basis. Um, and during the course of writing my uh, second book, I uh, really became interested in archives. Uh, my second book was ba- is really a study of four different Basque communities and how its members, how their members responded to the Germans during the German occupation. Um, and this particular book that's just come out is the product of uh, that early interest in archival research. So I'm, an, I'm a social anthropologist who is uh, has one foot in anthropology and ethnography, and and also I, I feel like I'm an adopted historian, um, which is uh, an exciting new field for me. Oh, uh, fascinating. So you mentioned that the this particular book has come out of um, your research in the archives and sort of your long-standing uh, trips to this region. Um, I'm wondering if you can elaborate on um, what kept you going back to that region um, and talk about the, the the nature of the people there and the people you've come to know. Uh, just give the listeners a little bit of an overview on on. on why why you became so interested in that region yes 
in the 1970s, uh, when I was doing field work for my first book, um, the people of this particular mountain community uh, were very, very welcoming. They are very culturally proud people. They were eager to teach me the Basque language. I learned Basque through French. And they uh, taught me so much about their local way of life and the rituals that, that that were very important to them. And in the 1970s, like just caught that particular Basque community at a time of, of real change. Uh, many of their customs and practices were falling into disuse. Roads were coming through. People were beginning to acquire telephones and cars. Uh, and during the course of those conversations in the 1970s um, about their their community, their culture, their language, um, the elderly people would uh, often refer to the dark times of the 1940s. And at that particular time, I was focused on doing a conventional ethnographic study of that community. And while interested in, in the historical background to the, to the community, the, the, the Second World War was certainly far a focus of, of, of intellectual interest for me at the time. But nevertheless, as, as Oxford taught me to um, appreciate that nothing is unimportant when you're doing field work, I took field notes about comments on, on the German occupation. So my field notes go back to, the ni- to 1976. Um, and uh, during that 1976, 77, 78, when I was uh, working on finishing my, my DPhil dissertation, um, People then would catch themselves talking about the German occupation and they'd say, oh, Sandy doesn't need to know that. And they would change the topic of conversation. I never initiated those conversations. They were just things that they were, that obviously were on their mind. Um, and they said, Sandy, it's really too soon for us to talk about these things. And during that initial period of field work, uh, I worked um, a lot in the town hall archives. And was as as anthropologists do, I was collecting genealogical and genealogical information from the birth, marriage, and death records. And I came across an entry in the ledger of, um, of deaths for the 1940s, and uh, I came across the name of a young man, age 19, and the priest had written in the margin, uh, died in Buchenwald in August 1943. And I went back to my Basque household and. The woman of the house was always very interested in knowing what I was learning, both out of self-interest and uh, just curiosity. And I asked her about the case of this young man, and, and she was hesitant and said, oh, you know, they, that was a very hard period. There, there was a local denunciation, um, and hers was a community so tightly knit and uh, in which there was tremendous community solidarity, so a, a betrayal always strikes at the heart of any small face-to-face community, and certainly that was the case here. Um, and she was reluctant to tell me the whole story, and it took me about five years of uh, going back every summer at, at every opportunity, um, and gradually I pieced, I pieced the story together. And it was a very tragic one in which um, the father of this young man apparently denounced him to the Germans and uh, denounced the young man's, the young neighbor as well. Both of them perished. Um, so it was a very divisive time, but one one that the people of this community overcame. Um, and my relationship with the people was solidified not only by my my constant interest in them and affection for them, but I my first book, The Circle of Mountains, was also translated into French. And it is still it would be a bestseller if it were still in print because the people over there. Uh, 
really love that book because it is a, a glimpse into a past that, is, that that many of them, the younger generations, don't know about. So I'm I've been glad to have made a contribution like that to 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 them. And I also made an ethnographic film with Granada Television in the 1980s about this community. And uh, of course, I I showed them uh, two versions of the film before it was aired in Britain. And uh, that again is something that. Uh, that they have really appreciated as as uh, something as a cultural treasure for them, and it it is still shown in the Basque Country as uh, as a, a lens through which to understand the way life was back you know many decades ago, and of course I've just I've just celebrated something like 43 years knowing these people, and I've watched I've I carried the three grandchildren in my my current household there to their baptisms. I've been to weddings, funerals. And uh, even though I now live in Reno, I am I'm I'm back there every summer. Um, and when I, I I had a gap in my academic uh, uh, career, I was a university administrator at, at Oxford for 13 years. And when I came back to the University of Nevada in Reno, um, that's when I had a chance to shift from social anthropology into history. Uh, and uh, I wanted I had decided to focus on the, the experience of German occupation, um, and be, so combined field work with um, starting with with and with uh, archival research. And in 2003, when I started my field work again, of course I, I had been back many every year, but when I told them what my new research interest was, the, the German occupation, the experience of, of daily life under German occupation, the people said. Oh, Sandy, now it's it's you're too late. <laughs> it was too soon in 1976, and they lamented that now it was going to be too late because so many people had died already. Um, but uh, so their their response to me, uh, my interest in in a very difficult topic, because it also it entailed not only what constituted resistance but also what constituted collaboration. Um, I had a, a, many many people. Uh, Coming to me, wanting to wanting to talk to me, um, and so th- my, that was my second book, uh, and it was a, a uh, the, the first step for me in in understanding the occupation. Uh, I combined field work with uh, those men and women who had direct experience of of the Germans, um, either as children or as 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 younger adults, and sometimes as as older adults, um, and that was a. a that provided the, a really firm groundwork as, as well for my the book that's just come out, um, and I am very gratified that that people trusted me, and they would often say, um, "We're glad that you're writing this book because it's really time that people understood what happened uh, in these difficult times." Um, so there was, uh, and there were obviously there are ethical issues involved in working on something that involves. Uh, tragic events in people's lives and people did things that they would probably be very unlikely to do in times of peace. Um, and anyway, the, the research for this, the current book, um, really made me, an, I, I laughingly say, an archive junkie because the archives are such fun to work in and trial dossiers uh, were an anthropological uh, treasure for me, um, especially when they contain letters and photographs and um, the kinds of things upon which I could draw to reconstruct the experience of daily life um, during during the 
occupation and also the post-liberation years. Um, yeah, no, thank you for uh, sharing in that level of detailing. I think it's important for people listening to understand that not only when we write, when we do these large projects that we're dealing with real people, with real lives, um, they're not some abstract thing. Um, and, you know, they have reactions and stories to tell. Um, and you've given, obviously, lots of your life to this one topic and i think it's important for people to hear that um so i think thank you for sharing um to go back to a little more general question um this region of the world may not be a place that a lot of people are real familiar with um so if you could just give a few minutes on sort of the, the historical background of this region um why it's historically important, what are some of the conflicts, um, and what are some of the languages spoken there? Sure. Um, well, there, there, there are seven uh, provinces in the entire Basque country, three of which are located in southwestern France, um, and that, of course, is the area in which, in which I specialize. And the three French Basque provinces uh, are run inland from the coastal uh, communities of Bayonne and Biarritz, and the community in which I, the province in which I've mainly worked is Chiboroa, uh, which is the easternmost in the higher, highest part of the Basque Pyrenees. And it's a, it's a borderland region, um, that is very, uh, very unlike, uh, other parts of France in, in a number of ways. Um, the Basque language is not Indo-European. It is, uh, it's a language unto itself. Um, and, it is also, as a borderland, an area of, of multilingual and multicultural people. And certainly the, from you know, the first half of the, the 20th century with uh, the First World War, the Spanish Civil War, and then on its heels, the beginning of the Second World War, there were many, many different nationalities in that part of southwestern France. Um, there were white Russians. There were, um, there were people from uh, different parts of Eastern Europe. Um, people displaced people, <laughs> and so it was a very—it's an unusual region of, uh, because of that. And also, in terms of the context for for my own work on the German occupation, you know, there was a, a huge exodus of of uh, exiled Spanish Republicans who who fled Franco in from 1937, 1938, and 1939, uh, and some many of whom stayed in that part of southwestern France. Um, and their story is also part of the stories that I that I try to tell um, about the experience of the German occupation. Um, and so the Basques are culturally they're also culturally very um, unlike other parts of France. With they have a very distinctive culture in terms of um, what's in, what's important uh, in the rural. It's very rural in the French in the French Basque country. Um, the house gives one an identity and a name and Neighbor relationships are extremely strong, and you don't you don't find that that kind of close social relationship and community quite the same in other in other parts of France and certainly uh, not in Spain. So it's culturally it's culturally a unique area, I think. Um, can I ask a follow up? Um, you mentioned in the book in the early stages, I believe, in the introduction, that even though they are so culturally different, um, that World War One was a sort of very important experience. For people in the in the Basque region, that they sort of felt more French um, during the war. Did that was that um, something that was sustained, or was it just a brief moment of patriotism? No, I think I I, I really think it was um, the starting point for 
uh, French Basques to feel French in the, for the first time in a very significant way, uh, because uh, so many French Basque men were um, were drafted, called up to to serve France, and many of them didn't speak French. And can you think of anything more terrifying than the possibility of going into the trenches and not being able to understand your commanding officer? Um, and, you know, the men had also never, they'd never traveled much. That It is a part of the world in which, um, even up into the 1970s, uh, many people um, who stayed there, had ne- their, their social universe was very small. Uh, so the First World War, um, that together with emigration to uh, South America and North America, certainly widened horizons. Um, and there was a high desertion rate among French Basques during the First World War, uh, because they, many of them did not think it was their war uh, and did not want to fight for France. So they would either hop over the Pyrenees into Spain and stay with smugglers they knew or relatives they had there, or they would often emigrate to the American West, where there were already um, Basques known. The chain migration uh, certainly increased because of, because of the desertion rate. Um, but it was uh, they, they, they really irritated the French authorities uh, because they uh, they because they did not feel some of them did not feel French. But those who did fight um, really had, they had to learn French and they they came back, um, you know, with a different sense of sense of the world. And I think that was a turning point in terms of uh, how they saw themselves. They still saw themselves as Basque first in most cases. But uh, there was an attachment then to France that was that was new. Um, has there ever been a, a serious uh, movement to for independence? Um, there have been movements that advocated for autonomy that were sympathetic to uh, the Basque nationalist movement uh, on the other side, the southern side of the Basque country. But it's never really taken root um, in the same way. The people are very culturally proud, but they. Uh, and now they, they understand the world has changed very much. Of course, now people are much more in touch with what, what the world around them. Um, but in the 70s, for example, I mean, there was only there were only two cars in the community. We had two telephones, um, and so it was very isolated. Uh, and they, uh, I remember, I, I worked for three years in San Sebastian in the southern Basque country in Spain. And uh, when I would go back to the French Basque community at weekends. Uh, they they really didn't have a sense of what I was doing and <laughs> what it meant to be in the Spanish Basque country because they they had, they'd been the other side of the of the of the mountains in the opposite village to sell their cheeses or to work as cheesemakers, but um, otherwise they didn't really they weren't entirely clued up with what, what was going on, on the other side. I just speak of people who are farmers and shepherds. You know, these are people whose primary concern is are the sheep and the cheese and 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 running the farm and the weather. <laughs> Um, and because uh, it's a very rural area. Um, okay, yeah, though, thank you for clarifying. I, I wasn't sure. I was, I was curious if, because I know that that in Spain there, you know, there's more of this clamoring for autonomy. Um, you know, the Catalonians, for example. Well, they're yes, they're watching. Basques today um, on both sides of the Pyrenees are watching Catalonia with interest. I'm sure. With interest, yeah. Um, um, so you you sort of. Uh, mentioned in your last two answers um, that sort of community hospitality um, are sort of central to their culture. And you, in the beginning of your book, um, discussed that you rely on sort of these anthropological concepts, um, hospitality, 
um, and gift exchange, just to name two. Um, I'm wondering if you can explain those a little bit to people who, again, may not be as familiar with the with the concepts that you're using. Um, I, as I tell my my students here at UNR. Um, be glad that you don't have an anthropologist uh, trying to study you. We're, we're, we're very much a nuisance because we have to learn the language and we follow our informants around to understand their way of life. And that's exactly what I did in the 70s. And, and I'm, a, I'm a fixture there now. But uh, in, uh, when you do field work, um, you, know, you are constantly engaged in what we call uh, up, observation participation. You're taking part in life. I learned how to herd sheep. Um, I was a disaster at milking sheep. I, 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 they, they, they took that task away from me because the ewes too often got cross and kicked my, my bucket and I lost my milk. Um, but as an anthropologist, you, you know, you, you, to me, if you do it properly, you engage in the way of life and you know, then you understand things like the importance of you watch people and, and, and how they interact with each other. And if you know, you, I got to understand Basque hospitality, which is, um, there are certain rules, as there are in most societies, for uh, wel- welcoming someone to your table. Uh, certainly, getting getting past the farm the farmhouse door. If you get inside, that's that's the first step. And if you're offered food and drink, that is a sign of of, of acceptance. Um, and uh, just to, to illustrate the importance of hospitality, and it because I it does enter into this this new book of mine. Um, I was sitting at uh, the table in my my first farmhouse with the the widow who was my hostess and uh, a young French PhD student from Paris arrived unannounced and um, he came in and my my hostess had heard about him he'd been living in a neighboring village uh, for about the same period of time as I at that stage but he spoke absolutely no Basque and uh, the people of this community were very proud of me that I. I spoke Basque. I learned Basque. I make I made a lot of mistakes, which endeared me to them because I could laugh at myself. Uh, but this young man came in, and she, out of courtesy to me, invited him in, and and he sat at the table. But she didn't offer him any food or bread or cheese, which is, I mean, wine, bread, or cheese, and that is the normal thing. If you get inside a Basque farmhouse, that's what you're offered any time of day. Um, and so he he knew so little that he didn't even know how deeply insulted he was, how, how insulting. She was to him, um, and then to top it all, she said she asked me and Basque to go herd the sheep, and she knew that he he had street shoes on and had no idea how to herd sheep, and the poor man just had a terrible time, um, and he, he he came back and she still didn't offer him anything to eat or drink. And there's an example of when the door is you know closed, you're not accepted. So when I started working in the archives uh, of the German on the German occupation, um, I. I had what I call an ethnographer's eye. I'm looking into the archives for things that relate to Basque culture, uh, such as offers of hospitality and what I call commensality, the act of eating and drinking together, um, and also gift exchange. Um, because in my anthropological fieldwork, uh, much of my first book was about uh, gift exchange in this particular community. They exchanged gifts of blessed bread every Sunday and it was a it was called the gift of life so gift I knew anthropologically I had background on the importance of gift giving and reciprocity um, and the same thing happens in rural Basque culture in in the 70s uh, up until very recently uh, particular neighbors uh, it returned 
the favor by helping with um, uh, the, the experience of death. When a household lost one of its members, the neighbor would take over the, the work of the house and the farm. So there are all kinds of examples of of gifts being exchanged, and gifts not in the sense only of physical objects like bread, blessed bread, uh, but also services. And so when I read the archives pertaining to the occupation and uh, these um, dossiers, I was looking for the ways in which people created social relationships with one another, and people do that through things like eating together, drinking together, um, exchanges of hospitality, exchanges of uh, material objects and services. Uh, so I read the archives in a, in a different way from a traditional, even a, even a, a social historian, I think. Um, and sometimes my, my, my colleagues in French history uh, tease me and say, how on earth do you have the patience to, you know, figure out who knew whom and, uh, you know, trace, try to trace patterns of sociability. But that's what I, that's, that, that's a lot of the, the kind of research that I did for this book. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned also in the book that the Germans, um, even before the Nazi period, had a tremendous interest in this region. Um, they would send people there to learn the language, learn the culture. I'm wondering if you can explain why that is. Where did that start? Yeah, I was fascinated by this too. I hadn't appreciated it uh, before. But the German scholars, uh, going back to Humboldt even, uh, they're very much interested in, in the Basque language. Um, both, you know, from the 18th century, 19th century, uh, there were several, um, there were several departments, uh, uh, sorry, linguists, linguists who, who focused on the Basque language. Um, Basque was taught in a number of German universities in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, so Germans, and Germans also, um, before the, long before even the First World War, had an intellectual interest in the Basque notion of, of, of homeland, and some some Germans saw it as very similar to a German, the German notion of folk, um, and German notion of community. Um, and of course, as Hitler came to power, that 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 all took on new, a new kind of interest with the rise of National Socialism, um, and some some Nazis uh, looked to the Germans as a possible uh, people who would fit in their their new new order for Europe as. Uh, as Aryans, because uh, there was in Basque nationalism um, in the ni- late 19th century uh, a, a, a singularity of, of excuse me, uh, being Basque as a race, and the Germans took a particular twist on that the Basque race as being special and superior, which they that was their own twisting of the notion of Basque race, um, but they they tried to some some saw it as as, as fertile grounds for uh, being part of of, of Hitler's uh, new order, that never gained gained ground. Um, I was I was sort I was very interested that sort of Werner Best took a, a real keen interest in this region um, and sort of looked out for it and um, thought that they could somehow be their own thing under, you know, a German occupied or dominated Europe. Um, I just, I had, it was something that was totally new to me. I didn't, I didn't realize that they had such a profound interest in this area um, for so long. And then, um, so that, that leads me now, we've, we will jump a little bit forward. So we have the war 
uh, France loses, um, they're occupied. Um, what, in, in a general sense, is occupation, German occupation in the Basque area like for the average person, given what you just explained, that they sort of saw them as racial equals, um, sort of had an affinity for their culture and their language and so forth. And I think I think it's important to to remember that that was that didn't uh, include all Germans and or and all certainly all the Germans who were posted there as soldiers during the occupation. Um, I think that um, I think that I know that most almost with very few exceptions, the Basques certainly did not welcome the occupiers. Um, they uh, because of their own sense of of cultural distinctiveness and. Uh, what country, what what region likes to be occupied by a foreign authority? Uh, in having lost a war, <laughs> having uh, and and having your houses and your businesses requisitioned by the occupying authorities, um, the I think the general message from and this, this varied across France, but uh, in that part of southwestern France, uh, the Basque Coast was occupied straight away in in June of 1940, and there was a concentrated um, German presence on the coast uh, that uh, certainly from the beginning probably created many more tensions than were felt eventually in, in the interior lands where there were fewer Germans. Um, and how people react to the Germans very much depended upon uh, how the Germans behaved. Um, and to begin with, by all accounts, and this I think this was it varied across France, but often the Germans to begin with were courteous. And like to present themselves as, you know, the, the polite, well turned out victor. Uh, and sometimes that impressed people. Uh, and as the occupation went on, certainly by you know, 1942, uh, tensions increase and once German violence against local people, uh, began to take place, um, the attitudes harden. Uh, but the experience of occupation for so many, was uh, a matter of getting on with life. You know, you've got to make the best of your circumstances. Um, you don't want the Germans around, but they're there. And what do you do? Um, and so I find, I found in the dossiers and also in listening to people who had direct experience of the occupation that you, as I said earlier, you made choices that you wouldn't ordinarily be forced to make. And you did things that some you probably would never have dreamt of doing to protect your own interests, those of those uh, those you loved. Um, and people often. The one thing I wanted to emphasize to you too is that, unlike other parts of France, there, German officers who were posted to the Basque Country often had very long um, uh, deployment there, and. Some of the Germans about whom I've written in this book uh, were there for a year and a half, um, sometimes almost two years. And these are small face-to-face -face communities. So they became naturally uh, pretty well acquainted with local people because they're around and they, they need to buy things. They, you know, they are in the village square. Uh, they are in the post office. You know, they're, they're there. And the other striking thing is that so many of them were multilingual. Um, and one of the Germans about whom I write uh, learned Basque, which is a difficult language. Uh, he also was fluent in English, Spanish, and French. So uh, that made the experience of occupation quite different, 
from other parts of France where Germans were only fleetingly stationed to certain places and were very much more on the move than they were in this Pyrenean borderland. So that added a different layer. And I think going back to your earlier point about why this is an unusual region and why the occupation was a little unusual there, uh, the, 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 the duration of, of, of the Germans' stay there, uh, I think, again, affected the way people responded to them and the events that the events that happened. Um, I haven't mentioned resistance. There was, of course, armed resistance. I was my next question about resistance. Yeah. Um, I wrote much more about the resistance in my second book, um, War Judgment and Memory in the Basque Borderlands. Uh, and there were two resistance groups that were very, that were active in the, the easternmost Basque province, the, the De Gaulle Secret Army and a very a right-wing, very conservative, uh, uh, mainly outsider uh, resistance group that uh, operated all across France, but they were outsiders, and that's important to, to understand as opposed to insiders, local men and women. Um, and there was terrible rivalry between the two, uh, the two movements. There was also a communist-led resistance group, um, so there were three, three main active ones, and people still are still uncomfortable about the, the animosity and rivalry that divided those three resistance groups. Um, and sometimes they got, uh, they had greater, they had, they had very serious clashes sometimes about strategy and how to, you know, how, how to, how to proceed against the Germans. So that was an interesting part of, of my, my field work. Um, would you say that resistance in that region was effective? Um, any more or less of, more effective or less effective than sort of wider France? Oh, I don't think it was anything on the scale of what one found in central France, um, near Clermont or Lyon. Uh, it was, they were not, you know, they were local, it was very, very local. Um, and they did, they did carry out acts of sabotage and they harassed the Germans. Um, and, you know, they helped, they did help to liberate <laughs> their communities. Um, although when, when one points out to them, the Germans actually did leave of their own accord. <laughs> um, they, you know, they, they're very proud of the fact that they, they did actively, a large number of them did actively resist. And the other thing, interesting thing about the resistance there, when I, when I talked to and listened to, um, elderly resistors, um, there were quite a few women who took part in the resistance and they were very reluctant to tell their stories. They always deferred to the men, which was very unlike Basque women because Basque women are normally, uh, will, you know, regard themselves on equal footing to their menfolk. But in this case, it was, it was curious. And I, uh, the men would always come forward and they, you know, je fais la résistance. Uh, they, I, I was in the resistance and they would switch from Basque to French to tell me about their experiences. And I think that goes back to our point about World War II, World War One, and how that experience of war made them, made men feel French for the first time in a significant way. And I, I, I picked up on it when, when they would describe their resistance exploits and would, would revert to French as the language of, as the descriptive language. Um, um, oh, no, go ahead. I... <laughs> no, I was just going to say about the women. Finally, I, I did get women to tell me about what they had done. And, you know, they would, some of them would ride bicycles for 60 miles carrying messages on their bikes to different, either for working for an intelligence agency or network. And there were many trans-Pyrenean intelligence net networks. So women did play a major part in the resistance as well as the men. 
I was going to ask if any of the women had eventually opened up to you as to why they didn't want to talk about their activities in the resistance, why they deferred. Um, I think they were being very humble. I mean, it was, uh, they, they, I think it was humility uh, more than anything. I don't think they, they, they weren't bothered about claiming, you know, claiming acts of heroism. They were, they were very adamant not to be doing that. They said, we just, when you have to, when you know you have to do something, you do it. But their take was very different from the men. The men wanted credit. <laughs> um, it was quite, it was quite interesting. <laughs> um, so now let's turn to the heart of your book, um, the second section where you have the case studies. And uh, one of the things I really liked about that you included in the book was a a, a list of all the names of all the actors um, in each chapter. Um, it really helps you keep keep all the the players straight. Um, that was great to have that in the front of the book, um, and obviously you, you you had seven or eight uh, case studies, so we we can't talk about them all. Um, I'm wondering if you could pick one or two of your favorites, um, and and discuss those a little bit, and I'll ask you some follow ups. Um, but uh, I, I didn't want to go through the process of picking specific ones because I wanted to hear what ones you really would like to emphasize. I guess I would start with the one that first piqued my my interest in the archives, and that is the the case of the the spinster in the city of Po who befriended a Nazi officer. Um, and I found that that was the first dossier I I, I opened. Uh, and I, at that time, I wasn't focusing on the dossiers, but that's that's the one that got me hooked. So I'll, I'll say a few words. Um, about it, um, the in the dossier uh, I find I found 29 letters from the Nazi officer to this woman uh, in Po, and I thought that was a, an amazing window into a, a Franco-German friendship. And the dossier, the story, um, is a is a, a very interesting lens into how women, French women, and German soldiers. Uh, sometimes became friends, and these two clearly were friends. Uh, I don't think they were lovers, um, but and he, the Nazi officer, was certainly manipulative. Um, as you know, having read the book, he he would begin his letters to Lulu, is the character's name, uh, by commenting on you know their their the friends in common that they had and their 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 sexual trysts and liaisons and their their follies. And would move on to maybe comment about the war, this wretched war, when's it going to end? And then the German officer would always, in his manipulative way, produce a shopping list for Lulu and say, my dearest, dearest Lulu, uh, you, as you know, the, the terrorists have bombed my home, my hometown, and my poor dear darling wife has lost everything. I've lost my library, my books, my paintings, my works of art, uh, my clothes, you know, my entire world is turned upside down. Can you please, can I please borrow another 5,000 francs from you, dear Lulu? And um, sometimes he would make little drawings in his letters of the things he wanted to acquire, such as six knives, forks, spoons, because they'd lost their cutlery, or a house coat that had so many buttons on it. But the thing he really coveted from her was a, um, a bathrobe for his wife's and preferably in pale blue or pink, either would do. And of course, she was trying to provide these these goodies for him from the black market. So it's an, it's an extraordinarily lopsided friendship. 
um, that uh, that intrigued me greatly. And of course, she and her other female friends, all of whom were um, socializing with Germans, and each one of them had a very had a different position on whether they were pro-German or not. But she, Lulu, ended up with a quite severe sentence and never tried to defend herself. Um, and that uh, it's a very it's a very curious story and one that always puzzles my students when we look at these narratives. Um, and I guess the uh, another one that I would say is uh, I was really in, I love them. I mean, I'm fascinated by them all. Um, you know, everything from the the bicycle vendor who is just making a ton of money off the occupation and and meets an unhappy end uh and it was early on and so justice was uh you know justice was not served in in that particular case but the one i want to mention was the one of the the basque farmer a pro-german basque farmer uh that was such a complicated case and as i say in the book the dossier is about as tattered as the lives of those people it really was uh a a a window into the kind of uh, duplicity, uh, the kind of vengeance that was wrecked sometimes. It's not a pretty story, but one in which, um, you know, a Basque farmer was pro-German, invited Germans to dine at his table. Um, his daughter-in-law was a, 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 under the same roof, hiding uh, an evader of, of obligatory work service in Germany. And was her husband was working as a clandestine guide to help Jews and and allied pilots over the Pyrenees. So in terms of, you know, who was who and on what side, it was a very uh, complicated household and one in which tragedy occurred. Um, and I think that one of all the of all of them, it focuses the most on on the Basque culture and uh, the important, you know, when you do invite a German to your, your table, what does that mean and how is that viewed by the post-liberation authorities. And it's an extraordinary case because, you know, the man was let off. Um, and it seems pretty clear from the archives that he denounced his own daughter-in-law and she and her cousin ended up uh, dying in, in German concentration camps. Um, anyway, they are, each one of the stories, there's a window of into human folly and vengeance and duplicity and there is quite a lot of sex involved too. Yeah, uh, and I actually this. I'm glad you brought this particular one up because I, I was also very curious as to why he was he got off because um, he he was pretty clearly um, get from your book very clearly guilty. Um, so you 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 do something uh, with these stories um, that's really extraordinary. So you 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 rely on trial uh, testimony, trial documents that you had to get special permission to see um they had been classified are are they still classified considered classified now things have opened up um even since uh well certainly in the last five years and uh i think it was two christmases ago many more of the files were opened up um and i'm actually not i'm not, I'm not sure that all of these are open to the public now um which frustrates some some people who are who want to know about their families um, and I have had people ask me if I could help them understand better what happened to their loved ones. Um, I have I've been very careful about that because uh, I was under you know uh, under uh, under oath so to speak to protect the identity of people about whom I write. Um, but the, the archives are much more open now. So the um, these files I aren't have, even. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. No, uh, I was just going to say that these files are not even um, open to people who 
are concerned with their own relatives. No, no. And that is, uh, um, that is something that frustrates family members sometimes. And it, but it's interesting because I had, um, I had one gentleman come up to me in the archives in Poe and he, a lot of, I'm a familiar face there and he, a lot of, a lot of the people, the regular archive readers are working on their, on local history. Um, but he came over to me and he said, I'm, I'm in my eighties and I, I understand you're, you're doing research on what collaboration meant during the German occupation. I said, yes, I am. And he said, I want to thank you. He said, it's, you know, we've been, we've been silent for too long about what happened. And he said, I think it's important that the, that the truth come out. And he said, I'm glad you're American, you're British American, <laughs> because he said, I don't think if you were French, you'd be, you'd be, um, so fair in your treatment of these texts. And I said, well, wait for the book before you <laughs> tell me that. I hope that's what I'm doing. Um, so that, that was a real expression of trust. Um, I've had other people, you know, say, particularly when they want to vindicate uh, a family member who was wrongly accused of collaboration. Um, but the thing to remember also, Craig, is that uh, the newspapers of the t- time carry people's names and stories. I mean, you can see who was charged with what, uh, who was accused and being interned. So in a way, it's uh, people could figure out exactly, you know, exactly what was happening um, to some extent. Um, and some of my Basque friends uh, over there uh, who have read the book and you know, obviously can read English and I, I, they really would love to have a French edition of it, but I think many of them feel it's still too soon um, because there are, you know, there's a small world and small face-to-face communities, you know, people don't know everything, but um, even if you change people's names and change locations, uh, some of the stories will be familiar enough. Uh, it's quite possible that uh, perhaps it is too too soon yet, but we'll see. Right, and so... Did you find using these um, these documents um, challenging? Um, you know, with tri- anything having to do with trial testimony, you have to sort of read through the read between the lines and be very careful how you use it. Um, um, so I assume you were able to. Like you mentioned the newspapers, you were able to corroborate a lot of this with other local sources. Yes, indeed, um, and I've used I've drawn upon. The local press, which of course the local press was <laughs> uh, extremely political, of course, and censored during the occupation, but the post and the post liberation press was as well. Uh, so I've, I've, I've used the press to a great extent. I've used um, diaries. I've uh, it, I've used um, letters. Uh, the memoirs, a flood of memoirs, you know, have came out, uh, particularly particularly after the year 2000, a lot of self-published memoirs. And you have to be care- very careful with memoirs because you, why, why do people want to tell their version of the story? But they're interesting. Um, and the documents themselves, uh, I've read over 300 of them, of the dossiers. Uh, and so, you know, you, you do have to treat these documents very carefully. You have to remember that they're written looking backwards. They're written post-facto. They're uh, as post-liberation, you know, uh, uh, testimonies of, of the past, and people lie. <laughs> Certainly, <yeah. laughs> um, And one of them, one of the case, the case of the black market bicycle vendor who was executed. Uh, I came across the, his main accuser in another dossier, completely unrelated, in which he told the same court and some of the same magistrates uh, that 
uh, uh, somebody else had denounced him. He didn't mention the man's name he'd accused of who got executed. <laughs> so people, for whatever reason, don't always tell the truth. Um, and in telling the stories, I, I, I'm currently writing a, a paper on, on the what I call my ethnographic approach to trial dossiers. Um, and how do I how do you find the story? Because I wanted these to be readable and accessible. Um, and it's like detective work because you have to be patient. You have to look at detail and read deeply and widely to try to piece the story together and taking into account the different voices you hear. Um, because the, 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 the raw stuff of, the, of these narratives are the, the testimonies of people who either are the accused or people who uh, uh, worked for the testified for the prosecution or the defense and other onlookers who would who would talk to the police. So, um, but it's a really rich resource. And of course, the greatest excitement, if you work in archives yourself, you know <laughs> that uh, the, it's really fun to get a, a, a dossier that's two feet thick and uh, you know it's going to be full of um, interesting materials. And those are the ones that I've ended up using that have the richest detail that enable me to um, try to reconstruct what happened and capture a sense of of these people's experiences. Of course, there are many silences and gaps. I don't know the whole story in any case. I never will. Nor nor does one when one does field work with real living people. <laughs> but um, I hope that these stories offer a, a good grass, grassroots level glimpse of of what it was to be there under under German occupation and in that wild post liberation period. Um, yeah, fascinating. I, I was I was sort of when I was reading the book and, and reading that you had gotten special permission to see these documents and going through them all, I was I was almost excited myself because I've I've worked in many archives and I too understand the excitement of getting the big files that have lots of things in them. Um, so as a matter of conclusion on this book, um, and it really is a fabulous book, and I would encourage everybody to go out and get it. Um, what are the couple things that you would like anybody listening today to take away from your book? I think that my 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 biggest contribution, I hope, is is in the telling of these narratives. Uh, I don't know of anybody else who's quite who's attempted to do quite the same thing, um, using the documents in this way to reconstruct. Uh, experiences uh, and all the ups and downs of of, of daily life, um, and so I think I think that's what I hope that I will give readers is some some more immediate sense of what 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 drove people, what motivated people, the mistakes they made, uh, the luck they had or the bad luck they had, and to really put a, a human face. On writings about the German occupation, I mean, I'm all in. I, I know the importance of of understanding uh, events from the top down, but as an anthropologist, I'm. I think my gift can be uh, understanding, helping us to understand in a deeper way what life was like from the bottom up, um, because these are ordinary people. And and yes, we have previous. There are many works about, you know, the big fry uh, who were well known. You know, Germans or well-known collaborationists in France, um, and this is, I think, the first and it's rather unique portrait of ordinary people who, who, who whose experiences are worth telling. 
because I think they have much to teach us about the relevance of foreign occupation in our own times um, in in different parts of the world. Um, so I hope it's that human dimension that that I can give. No, I think that's I think that's a great message to sort of end discussion of your book on. Um, so traditionally here, we always like to ask, um, now that you're done with this project and it's been published and, and out, um, what are you working on now? Well, I have to I have to, to to laugh slightly. I am currently interim chair of the communication studies here at the university, but um, it's a it's a temporary post. I'm helping out the university, but when I can get back to it, um, I am I'm actually working on uh, German POWs in post-war France who were posted back to the Basque Country, um, and this is the the next you know the sequence to my interest in Franco-German relations and Franco-German-Basque-Spanish relations. So I've been looking at uh, working in the archives in mont de and Bayonne, as well as in Pau, uh, and trying to piece together the experiences of Basque and French families who found themselves housing German POWs who were sent there to help France rebuild her infrastructure, her roads, um, they were often used, uh, the P- German POWs, as, as to uh, sweep the minefields, a very dangerous task. Uh, and so that's a, another, an interesting twist, too, on how, you know, the, 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 the German victor, then vanquished, now as prisoner of war, is coming back into that part of southwestern France. And the oddities I'm finding of sometimes people, um, the local families regarding them, as members of their family, almost it's 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 quite bizarre. But stay tuned. That's uh, that's <laughs> something that on which I'm working, and will be I'll be over there this summer. Uh, we'll be continuing that archival research, and we'll probably work in the archives in Bordeaux as well. Um, and lastly, I am about to embark on a book about cheese. So that is something completely different. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, we can all we can all get behind that. We can all get behind cheese. Well. Both of those sound fascinating. I'm hoping that when you're done, um, I can have you back oh, on the show and talk about Thank it. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And no rush, you know. <laughs> um, I know you've got lots of things uh, going on. I also want to thank everybody for listening today and that we will see you all next time. <laughs>